Schools and colleges are on holiday break this week, and we're going to take a rest at Ed Surge as well. So today we're rebroadcasting our most popular episode from 2017. It turns out the hot topic was MOOCs. <laughs> yep, MOOCs. As you'll hear, we sat down with a professor who may have taught the most students of anyone in the world about what she sees as the future of these free open courses. We'll be back with a fresh episode next week. Here's the Encore presentation. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. If you've ever zoned out during a lecture, or if you've taught students who look distracted as you click through that PowerPoint deck, maybe it's because we're hardwired to be bad at concentrating on long lectures. Our bodies, after all, evolved to master survival out in nature, rather than staring at glowing bullet points on a screen. The way our brains work is uh, we look intently at something, but we also kind of take a little break sometimes because we may be sneaking up on our prey, but something could be sneaking up on us. And if we aren't distracted occasionally from what we're paying attention to, we could become the evening's dinner instead of snagging that evening's dinner for us. That's Barbara Oakley, a professor of engineering at Oakland University, who spends a lot of time these days thinking about how people learn. And she's taught more students than just about anyone else on the planet. More than 2 million people have registered for the online course she teaches, called Learning How to Learn. And this week, I talked with Oakley about what she's learned teaching all those online students. And she makes the case for why free online courses like hers, known as Massive Open Online Courses, or MOOCs, might still lead to a revolution in education, even though the hype around them has died down. In fact, you might be wondering, MOOCs, are we still talking about that? Well, this professor argues that we should give him another look. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the Ed Surge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. I'm talking today with Barbara Oakley, a professor of engineering at Oakland University and an instructor in one of the most popular online courses of all time, uh, Learning How to Learn. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Jeffrey. So you have thought a lot about teaching um, and the mechanics kind of of how to get the best, how to get students to learn best uh, complex concepts. In one article you wrote, I saw that you said the lecture model um, that pop, that's popular at colleges is out of tune with how our brains work. Do you find that people at colleges are, or is there a, a rising awareness that changing tweaking college teaching can can better um, can be more effective based on some of these things we've learned about how the brain works. Oh, that see I love how you phrase that question because sometimes people will say, well, my students don't want to have um, they don't want to look at videos. They just want to watch me in class. And and that can sometimes be true because we've sort of We've trained our students that the best way to learn is to be held by the hand and have a teacher in front of them who's making them come to class in some sense and who's spoon feeding the material to them. 
But I am beginning to notice more and more when I first did a, a flipped classroom model where I I had some of the lectures in videos and then we worked materials in class. At first, some of the students were uh, a little reluctant. I mean, many of them liked it, but there were there were uh, a few. Um, it, not a sizable percentage, but you know, I'd say maybe 20% who would prefer it to be the old way, where it's just all right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Now it's about 0%. I mean, it seems as if the students are becoming accustomed to, hey, wait a minute, this is something that uh, I'm responsible for, I learn from it, and I actually benefit because I don't have to I'll go to class as many times. Uh, the material is presented very reasonably and logically. And like in, in my videos, there's a lot of humor and things. So it's not like, oh my word, it's 40 hours or 40 uh, minutes of drudgery here. It's like 40 minutes of good material, but sprinkled throughout, there's little bits of humor and things like that. So it kind of makes it more palatable and interesting. And uh, so I think students are beginning to adjust. It's it's surprising. We I think we've we've really unwittingly trained our students to want us and uh, to need us. And it's it's actually a very good thing I think to wean them into becoming more independent learners. So you teach. Um as I mentioned, a popular course that's free to anyone, a MOOC or massive open online course. Um, These MOOCs were a big trendy thing a few years ago. It was kind of all over the media. But today I know when I talk to professors, it's often more popular to kind of dismiss these MOOCs as an overhyped trend that didn't live up to their promise. So I guess I'm curious, where, where do you see MOOCs these days? Um, are they something that kind of failed to, to live up or or is there something still there? Oh, I, my own sense is that, wow, <laughs> there's a lot going on in the under, you know, behind the scenes. Uh, and they are sort of like a, um, a tidal wave where underneath there's all this action occurring and you may not see the surface until it actually hits the shore. Um, it, it, it takes a while for any societal change to occur. And I, it's in professors' best interests often to uh, dismiss and uh, disparage MOOCs because, well, face it, they're competition. And so, uh, and so you will often find that kind of thing. For example, at San Jose University, San Jose State, they, um, they had an experiment where low-cost MOOCs allowed people to take courses that they simply couldn't get into because there weren't enough uh, seats in the classrooms and it was really causing problems. They could do this for very low cost and the faculty revolted. And they made it clear during their meetings that it, it had nothing to do with the students and the students' needs. It was faculty fear about their jobs. So, um, I mean, a lot of people will disparage MOOCs professors. For example, they'll say, well, there's low completion rates in MOOCs, and that's why they're, they're a bad idea. But part of it is, 
we only see that there are low completion dates in uh, rates in MOOCs because they the data is available. If we let's let's take for example textbooks. How many students actually complete every chapter of a textbook and do most of the problems in the book? I would venture to say virtually zero. And in that sense, uh, I mean, most textbooks, students complete less than half the book. So completion rate for textbooks is actually probably far lower than that for MOOCs. And yet we never say, well, we should get rid of textbooks because there's a, a low completion rate. So um, the, the thing is, uh, moving a university is a little bit like moving a cemetery. You can't expect any help from the inhabitants. And so uh, this is, it, it's, it, it's tough for universities to take the idea that, oh, there could be really good online materials that are actually better than what I might present in class. Uh, and I could incorporate them in my class. I mean, in the old days, in the 1400s, when textbooks first came out, professors were, they were livid and horrified because they said, well, textbooks are gonna replace our classrooms. Uh, and we won't be needed anymore. And of course, that's not really true at all. They, they enhance the classroom. Professors are really good at pointing towards industry and saying, you'd never allow a, um, a pharmaceutical company to, um, you know, sort of do their, uh, you wouldn't want them to be the ones that are providing or being the final say-so on whether the drugs they're selling are are efficacious because they have a vested interest, right? But it's hard for professors to turn around and kind of see that the same logic applies to them, that they have a vested interest in their, you know, in their colleagues and in their profession. And um, I think it's intimidating and scary for them to see that you know, maybe there's a way to, um, you know, that there's competition coming. What there was one recent study that showed something like, you know, if the if the bottom 10% of teachers were replaced, it would make a substantive difference in the GDP of the country. Uh, um, I mean, really bad teachers don't do good things for our students. Um, and I think we sometimes just kind of forget about that. Hmm. I think MOOCs will enhance classrooms, but also they will serve as competition in classrooms. And that's going to force uh, universities, I think, to up their game. But it's only good MOOCs that I'm talking about that are like this. If you look at many typical MOOCs, it's a professor on one side, bullet points or pictures on the other, and they're just as boring as can be. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But, you know, just to um, play devil's advocate, I, though you mentioned the San Jose State um, experiment, which was, certainly did get a lot of press, um, but some of those also, the, the pro 
the performance was low and there were some there were some logistical problems there that that they were having trouble i understand there there certainly the faculty resistance is is certainly there but there's also isn't there also some data that has has shown that trying to get them in a university context has been somewhat trouble somewhat problematic i i think that this is what i was alluding to as far as making boring moocs mm. <laughs> and sometimes making somewhat problematic moocs some of those san jose uh state moocs were um showed very good results so it's easy to kind of cherry pick and only point to the ones that didn't, you know, have as good of results. There were uh, there were MOOCs that had very good results as well, and most recently there was a um, a comparative study at MIT where students actually, if I remember correctly, did a little bit better in the MOOC course, you know, on the same standardized tests than the people who took it in class and they preferred the MOOC course, um, you know, to the in-class course. So, uh, so it's coming. Um, Colorado, University of Colorado is now working towards uh, having MOOCs uh, uh, so that people can take them for college credit. And uh, I think it's, it's not going to be fast, but I think the more we... I think once they begin becoming broadly available for college credit, it's going to start changing the scenario of um, higher education, um, largely because it will provide for more competition and lower cost uh, for for college degrees, which I think are good things uh, for students today. You know, I want to balance this by saying, you know, I'm not like a, a nutcase about MOOCs uh, that, oh, yeah, they're going to dominate everything. But I think that they are going to provide for a competition right now. Uh, it's a statistical truism to say that half of all teachers are below average. <laughs> And sometimes college teaching, the average of that is, is pretty low because the real emphasis, particularly at research institutions, is not on good teaching, but on bringing in research dollars. So if you have um, MOOCs that are well thought out, well planned, in, in many ways, a good MOOC can keep your attention better than an in-class person can. Because a good MOOC has its academia with Silicon Valley with a little bit of Hollywood. And all of those things can combine to, to actually make something that, that is, in many cases, much more exciting and riveting than a typical college professor kind of walking in and saying, okay, now we're going to talk about um, you know, anatomy or we're going to do some circuit analysis now. Yeah. How many students have gone through learning how to learn? So it's 2 million registered students. And um, it, it's it's really been an unbelievable journey because I, I teach the course with Terence Sanowski. He's the Francis Crick professor at the Salk Institute. Mm -hmm. But the course was uh, 
basically put together in my basement. We filmed it there. I, I did all the video editing, uh, virtually all of it myself with a little help from my hubby. Huh. Uh, so it's all done for less than $5,000. Huh. I I had to give a, a talk once at Harvard, uh, and I was, you know, all nervous because I'm just this little Midwestern professor, you know, I asked to speak at Harvard. I walked in, and I I was just shocked because the room was packed. And I thought, why is there so much interest in this talk, right? I'm just, you know, I'm nobody, I'm certainly no Harvard professor. And it, it turns out that our one little MOOC made for less than $5,000, largely in my basement, had on the order of the same number of students as all of Harvard's MOOCs put together made for millions of dollars with hundreds of people. And so, you know, what that really tells you is, you know, some important things. Number one, it tells you that pretty much anybody can do it mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, they often, well, I made the mistake in front of Harvard of, of going, you know, you guys, this isn't rocket science. Anybody can do it. And, <laughs> You know, this is Harvard. When Harvard does it, you know, it's, uh, you know, we do it special or something. But they put video editing on some kind of huge pedestal that, you know, that only the experts can do it. And if you look at a lot of the, the great video editing that's going on on YouTube and so forth, I mean, it's, it's all amateurs because it's really easy to do. It's it's time consuming, but it, it's, you know, it's not hard. I could have all these dazzling special effects as it, you know, it appeared anyway. And it's just a little PowerPoint that I kind of look like I'm walking around in. But um, I, but I could also kind of appeal to underlying um, the underlying neuroscience of how we learn in some sense. For example, if I'm standing full body and I suddenly crop to me going half body, what that does is it provides the appearance of I've just loomed closer to you. Well, looming motion actually activates a number of neurophysiological mechanisms, attentional mechanisms that that rivet your attention. Hmm. So just by a few little editing tricks, I can, you know, the person doesn't have to force themselves to concentrate, top-down concentration. It's bottom-up concentration. It's like you you have this, you know, like compelling little motion or this thing appearing here that's unexpected, and it keeps people's attention riveted on the screen, and they don't even know why. So it was it was kind of fun doing the editing, but a lot of times universities are very used to their old mechanism of editing. Uh, You know, it's kind of like, we've got to produce 40 hours of content. So what's the best way to do 40 hours of content? You have a professor standing there droning at the screen, reading from a teleprompter and some pictures on the side as they come up. And that's, you know, their way of doing fine education. And it's, it's not going to last um, I don't think this phase of MOOC production is going to last a long time. It's, it's, it's competitive. What have you learned about teaching, maybe even that you can apply to your in-class teaching, from the experience of teaching, you know, millions of students on, a, on an online format? 
Um, I think one of the biggest things I learned is that students often um, don't know squat about how to learn effectively. So they'll come up and they'll say the darndest things, as they say. Hmm. Um, they'll, for example, I have one student come up to me and say, you know, I just don't understand how I could have flunked this test. And he showed me this test and it, you know, I've redlined all over it. He says, I understood it when you said it in class. Hmm. <laughs> and the, the thing is, we've gone so crazy overboard with understanding is the golden key to everything that we've somehow communicated to students that you don't need to practice. You don't even need to memorize or remember anything because you can always look it up. If you just understand it, you're good as gold. And it's 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 really a disservice to students that we've been doing that. So and just so many other things I, I will, you know, I have students come up and say, I'm just not doing well. And it's because I'm maybe I don't speak English very well, you know, and, and they're actually speaking to you just fine. And, you know, they they they're doing just fine in English. And besides, it's an engineering class. It's all numbers. Right. Mm -hmm. so if you if I ask, I've, I've learned never to believe a student when they say what they think their problem is. And I mean, they truly may believe what they're saying, but they actually are usually wrong. Hmm. So for example, this student would say to me, uh, you know, I, I, I can't do well in your course because I don't understand English very well. And then I'd say, well, okay, when you're listening to the videos in the flip portion of the class, and I say, stop right here and work the problem yourself, do you do that? He says, well, no, I don't have time. <laughs> and so he was never actively working any of the problems. He wasn't working with his team and so forth. So once we got that figured out um, and, I, you know, and it was made clear to him if he doesn't make the time, he's just not going to pass the class, he started doing a lot better. I guess you've talked about how you yourself struggled as a student of math, you know, um, back in the day. Um, I guess... Do you, what are your thoughts on your own experience or what's your own story here? Of, and how did you overcome um, your own, you know, kind of challenges get learning? You're an engineering professor now. I mean, you clearly got through your math, um, <laughs> any any math learning anxiety you must have had. Um, it, it's kind of an interesting story. So, I, I mean, I flunked elementary, middle and high school math and science. I, I enlisted in the Army to learn a language, learned Russian. And then found out, hey, guess what? I followed my passion right into a ditch because recruiters were sure not banging at my door and saying, you know, gee, we just got to have your Russian language skills. And so that's what prompted me to see if I could retrain my brain. Hmm. Um, and also it was just kind of like, aren't I supposed to be open to new experiences and new adventures? And yet I'm blocking this whole area out. But the reality is, I was very lucky um, when I went to the Defense Language Institute, although they didn't know any neuroscience at the time. Um, I mean, back in the 70s, you know, we it was still the Stone Age uh, as far as neuroscience, uh, you know, was. And but 
they taught right in line with the techniques we now know today to be the best in line with what we know from neuroscience. Mm. And, and so in some very great sense, that learning how to learn a language taught me meta skills about learning such that when I turned around and said, well, let's see if I can actually learn math and science, uh, I, I could start using some of those skills. Now, if I'd known then what I know now about learning, I could have done even a lot better. But at least it gave me kind of a toehold when I was 26 to start, you know, I, I think the big thing was developing a little bit of procedural fluency. You know, I wouldn't just solve a chemistry problem and then turn it in for homework. I'd solve it and then then I'd see if I could solve it cold again and then maybe again until I could. And I'd do it like on paper so I couldn't cheat really, um, you know, as far as thinking, oh, I've got that. But if ultimately, my goal was to be able to look at a problem and pace through it in my mind as if I was playing a song. Um, so it, it, I could pull it instantly to mind, pull those solution, you know, all the solution steps. I kind of knew it inside and out. And when you do that with enough problems, you begin to internalize the material at a very in-depth level. And Basically, I was just taking the same things I had done for language and applying it um, to uh, what I was learning in math and science. Lo and behold, it worked. And it worked because, uh, in essence, I was applying ideas of chunking, which I, I teach about in learning how to learn. I appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today. It's been it's been really fascinating. Oh, well, thank you so much. And uh, I just, uh, I think you're doing great work and it's a pleasure to speak with you. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. To keep up with future episodes, follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a minute to give us a rating. This episode was produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.